0: Hosted by wealthmanagement.com senior editor David Lennox.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of wealthmanagement.com's Celebrity Estates Wheels of the Rich and Famous. For anyone new to the podcast, in each installment, myself and a guest take on a different celebrity estate and attempt to extract some key lessons that planners can apply to their more traditional clients. The idea being that celebrity estate planning stories, although often ridiculous in their details, generally have at their core very basic issues that can just as easily apply to non-famous or fabulously wealthy clients. Our guest this week is Tim Bulk. He's the architect of a highly successful entrepreneurial career that encompasses independent advisory, strategic planning, and financial services. As founder and principal of T. Volk and Company, a boutique advisory firm that specializes in assisting closely held businesses, family offices, single and multi-family, and family-controlled enterprises, he leverages his own experience in a successful legacy family business and provides prudent and trusted counsel to families striving to protect their enterprises and preserve their wealth. Thanks for joining us again today, Tim.
2: It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks, Dave.
1: So this episode will be a bit different and a a bit more half-baked than usual, uh, as opposed to talking about a single celebrity, we'll be discussing an entire family. The British mm. royal family, to be more specific. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Well, the recent death of Queen Elizabeth gives us our nominal excuse to include the Windsors on the show. Instead of focusing specifically on Elizabeth, Tim and I will have a more freeform discussion about the family as a whole, or at least the half last half century or so of it, and how in many ways they are the perfect embodiment of the sentiment that I open every episode of this show with. Though an entire industry has sprung up around covering their every move coverage that is subsequently devoured breathlessly by millions of royal watchers the world over. When you take a step back and look at what's actually happening at their core, the Windsors and the Crown, really, aren't all that different than a more typical high-net-worth family and a family business. Uh, I've laid out a pretty wide-ranging hypothesis here, but there's no real obvious jumping-off point to get us started, so let's stick with what we do best on the show and start with the death, Uh, Elizabeth's to be specific. Her tragic passing, and more importantly, the atypically long life that preceded it, kicked off one of the most hotly anticipated successions in history. However, unlike most of the celebs we talk about on this show, there was not only an estate plan in place, but one that's fairly simple and basically and perhaps literally written in stone for hundreds of years. And everyone in the family and millions around the world knew exactly how things were going to shake out. Tim... I've spoken a great deal in the past about the need for transparency and flexibility in planning. The Windsors turn the transparency knob up to 11 and the flexibility one as low as it can possibly go. How does having everyone be aware of the details of a plan, but there being basically no wiggle room inside plan affect a high net worth family? Well, it's a,
2: it's a great question, David. I think it's, you know, one that people think about quite a bit it, in the sense of how can we make sure the plan's effective and, when you think about the royal family, one I'm just always in awe of her life and her her service to the to the country and to mankind. She was just remarkable, and I think we've we have to honor the passing of her passing of her as a you know just a remarkable figure for us. And if you think about the family, it's a thousand year old family. So here we're talking about a structure that's a thousand years old. Very few, if any, that I know of our families that we can reference like that. So we have a lot to learn from them. And I think it's amazing to see how they've evolved and transformed over the years, given all the different family members they've had in and out. And the family itself, there's a resilience to the family and the structure, even though they deal with all the same issues that everybody else does. The drama theirs just gets played out in front of us every day on the news. I mean, they have people, waiting to find out stuff or or actually secretly finding out the stuff and then exposing it. So in some ways, they face more more challenge than a lot of the families in that respect. But I think very, very wealthy families, people are obsessed with them. They're just a, 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 the 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 popularity of succession. And if you come from a family business and my friends will say, well, we watch succession. So is that just like your family business? Something? <laughs> mm, yeah. Just like it. Yeah. We have exactly twin jets that we all fly around in and everybody's got helicopters. Yeah, that's just totally realistic. No. And I think that sometimes the the transparency that we see with the royal family, I think, is unique because I think a lot of times families don't share what's gonna happen.
1: Look at Rupert Murdoch. Mm -hmm. He's not speaking of speaking of succession,
2: right? Right. That he acts like he's never gonna live. At least With the Queen, we knew exactly what was going to happen. Everybody knows their role. They had surprises when her uncle abdicated, obviously, and Mm -hmm. her life took a very different trajectory. But in some respect, that that transparency, as you said, doesn't provide any more flexibility. So let's just assume that the families that, that had transparency, some other family, and they... They've shared with their children exactly what's going to happen. Although i I don't very I don't know very many that have uh, shared everything.
1: Certainly not to this degree where ev- everyone knows with certainty. You know, unless someone dies, what's happening?
2: I just don't know a lot of family. I think one of the challenges we have in wealth management is getting people to talk about what they want. Yeah, and it's so typical with a family. Like I had clients that were. Uh, a group of siblings that were running a family business, very successful. And they had been in the leadership roles for a long, long time. So when I met with them, they kept talking about their kids. And I had already done interviews of everyone in the family, and they were talking about their their children. And I said, I have to stop for a minute. Are you talking about your children who are <laughs> in their 30s and 40s with children? Or are you talking about your grandchildren? Or I'm almost sure one or two of the grandchildren could almost have children. And I'm just confused. They all started to laugh at me. And they said, well, of course, we're just talking about our kids, our children, our direct children. I said, you mean the ones that have like 20 degrees amongst them? And, yeah. <laughs> and are 60? Are, are <laughs> you know, 40 years old and they're the leading, you know, a couple of them have advanced dual degrees of PhD and MDs. And I mean, they're laughing at me going, what are you trying to say? I said, well, they, when you talk to the kids, they they want to know what you want. And when I'm talking to you, you keep waiting for the kids to step forward. But neither one of you are telling them what you want. Mm-hmm. It's like a standoff at the OK Corral. No guns. Nobody's talking. They're so far away they can't hear each other. But nobody's even trying to talk. But everybody's
1: waiting. Exactly. It's like these two knobs that I mentioned, sort of transparency and uh... flexibility. Sorry. Yeah, flexibility are, you know, like sort of. What you're messing with in a plan to sort of make it stand the <laughs> test of time, right? You're sort of trying to find the right rotation of them to to make the plan last. Whereas, you know, in the case of the royal family, it's all on transparency. Everyone knows it's going to happen, so there's a certain you. There's no fighting it, you know. Mm-hmm. Especially after a thousand years, it's just this ball is rolling downhill. There's no room to fight it. But in terms of you know keeping a family together, then you know maybe it's lacking a little bit, right? Because you know if there's no room to fight it, then that means there's less room for individuality within the people in the family and less sort of alternatives are kind of trapped in the, the the, edifice, for lack of a better term. And I think, you know, we see a bit of this and a bit of what you're talking about with the uh, sort of who are the children in these older generations with Charles, right? Because okay. Queen Elizabeth, he's been Prince Charles for a very, very long time. And sort of he's been the assumed king for a very long time to the point where, people he kind of people kind of forgot about him at this point like they've looked past him he's been (laughs) waiting so long and she and elizabeth lives so long and um you know he's almost basically like missed his inheritance even though now he is king charles it's like oh but he's so old at this point that we're already turning around and planning for him to not be king anymore before he's even king um and i think uh you know this makes me think of a, a lot of families today where it's like by the time the head of the family business is willing to turn over the business to their kid the kid is 65 years old and he's immediately going to have to think, start thinking about his own succession where there's like this lost generation, basically this is like the gen X people for the most part and slightly older, uh, are, you know, as people are living longer are getting caught in this sort of in betweeny role in these families fairly often. And, you know, we talk about this idea of the great wealth transfer that was just a you know, supposed to happen has been supposed to happen for the last 25 years. Exactly. Um, and isn't happening yet. <laughs> um, and it's sort of, what we may see is that it just skips an entire generation, right? When it finally does happen, it's not going to be the people we assumed are going to be getting it. It's going to be their children. Um, and I think that Charles is is sort of a good example of this, where by the time he gets it, he's already got to figure out how to give it.
2: I think it's a combination of people not recognizing the stage of life they're in. Yeah. And, and then perhaps there's such a fear that they, you know, we can even use my own family. And I think there's a fear sometimes of bringing everybody together because they don't want they don't want the children to fight.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And then the conversation is like, what are we going to tell them? And Charles, for example, I think he was given assignment and had great duties all along. Now he's King Charles. I do have to say that a speech he gave about his mother, I thought was just phenomenal. I thought it was a speech of a lifetime. Mm-hmm. And so he has assuming the role and he's doing it with grace and dignity. He, he has the same value set that I think his mother had because he was yep. raised around it. It was his mom and dad. They, he, he, we forget that they're human, that <laughs> his mom and dad yelled at him. They didn't like all the things he said. He, you know, would say things and storm out of the room, I'm sure. Or they told him that was enough talking, you know, but with a the, with the lovely British style, which is very, you know, respectful. Where, where in America, we could have, you know, there's probably a lot more explet- ex- expletives. It would have been a more Jerry Springer yeah. sort yeah. of situation, yeah. <laughs> but I do think that there's something there about how our, the heads of the families are really struggling with who they choose to be the successor. successor. Mm-hmm. I think it has to do a lot with their own bias. Sometimes I think that nobody, you know, they think that nobody's going to do it better than them. And perhaps if they turn it over and they fail, but what's even worse, maybe if they do a great job and exceed every, th- every expectation and performance that they they did. And I think that this is going back to what stage of life you're in. So, you know, there's the movement from adulthood to eldership. And we need some of the families, we need the, the elder generation to step into being elders. And I liken it to and my good friend, James he Hughes, who's written quite a few books, affectionately known as Jay Hughes, talks about looking at tribal culture. And the elder's role is really to be able to be there to settle disputes that cannot be dis- settled by the family, to let the family know when they're off course. And then if the family members come to them for guidance, they don't really tell them how to do it. They just assure them some of the what's happened in the past. So they're kind of keepers of the history right Mm -hmm. and so that role of eldership i think is so important
1: and mentoring
2: is so important
1: so yeah i think that's a really good point this idea of eldership and also i just want to add that like that's something that needs to be cultivated it doesn't it's not something that's just bestowed on you when you hit a certain age and retire you know you have to i think that's part of the problem that we see with with certain family businesses is that especially first generation family businesses is that you know the founder of the business has spent so much time and put so much on themselves into building the business that they haven't cultivated this respect as the elder beyond just being like the one who has the wallet. And so, you know, they, they are less capable of transferring into that elder role because they haven't done the legwork Uh, and they've spent too much time on the business. And then once they give up the purse strings, well, then why am I respecting you at all? I don't even know you.
2: Yeah. I think that's a very clear,
1: I mean, your family members.
2: Let's just face it. Sometimes when we're talking about wealth management and transfer of the assets, it's a transfer. It becomes a business transaction, mm-hmm. right? Which yes. we know in planning, that's not the right idea. The idea is that we want to convey the level of love and expectation that comes with the money. Money, in and of itself, I think, is ephemeral. I mean, if you're chasing money, it's a it's an empty chase. The families that that I. Find that I admire the most are the families that help to instill a level of of um, I don't know like a level of satisfaction and how they find life. They 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 pursue their interests. They want to serve others. They want to have a a, a a legacy that you're going to leave with in the world. So we're you know, are you as a parent that's running a family business? It's enormous undertaking to run a family business or run any business. And if you're doing it very successful, it's a, it's all encompassing. But we do know that families that help engage other family members to help lead the family or help to nurture the family are the ones that succeed the most. We talk about family governance, which is a very oh, heavy term, but but basically family governance is about how to help the families come together to make good joint decisions about assets that we may share. Mm -hmm. Right? Yes. I don't know that we have a lot of great examples of that because if you watch television or you watch movies, it's all about the drama. It's all about the fighting, but we really know that there are families that have done a great job of that. They're in the family. They're in their fifth or sixth or seventh generation. And they've done an excellent job of nurturing the family. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting.
1: Re- right? You don't hear about them there, right? It's almost like the reverse Instagram, right. where like instead of showing only the perfect vacation and not all like the crap that went into getting there, like, you know, like, oh, I'm stuck between two fat guys, you know, sitting in the middle seat on the plane there. I just show right. like, hey, I'm there. This is the reverse of that, right? Where we only hear about the ones that mess up on you know, like snarky podcasts, for example. And um <laughs> But you know the ones who do a great job necessarily you know, aren't. It's, it's more under the radar. You know you have that sort of confirmation bias almost, where all we're hearing about is the ones that mess up. So everyone must be messing up,
2: right? It's and everybody loves to hear about what rich families are doing. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, we yeah. know if you look around and you look at some of the big institutions that we have in this country that are really remarkable. Many of them were created by super wealthy families that helped to endow them or helped to create them it's it's remarkable the families around the turn of the of the 19th century to the 20s from the 1890s to oh, I don't know 2015 that golden era there were enormous of, of, a level of industrial families that were hugely wealthy and they impacted so much of the life that America has today uh, libraries uh, schools uh, Hospitals, research, well things that really are the benefit to you know infrastructure, transportation, and we don't talk about those things that the families created that were a tremendous value to our lives today that made America great. Uh, And we're the only country in the world that looks at philanthropy the way we look at it. So it's a tax, just you know, it's a it's a tax incentivized decision, but it's also for the greater good of the world. So I think families can self-actualize better in the sense that they look beyond themselves. They look beyond the money and what they're going to do. What is it that they can help the family rally around? Maybe your family Mm -hmm. rallies around food bank, hunger. So then it teaches all the children and the grandchildren, the great-grandchildren to look beyond themselves because this is what we do as a
1: family. Mm -hmm it also creates roles, right? Which I think a lot of these yeah. families is important to, there is, you know, it's, it's very easy to become stuck and defined as something um, when you're a part of one of these families. Um, but there's, there's only one King, right? There's only one CEO. Uh, but then there's all these other family members who have dedicated their lives to sort of upholding the values of the family and are not going to get that, you know, giant carrot on the stick at the end, but, you know, you can create roles for them other than just being, oh, the other guys. <laughs> We're in this family, so you know. Though you can't be maybe someone else's head of the family, you know, a, a second child can be head of the giving arm of the family or head of the, you know, there's these philanthropy in that way. It creates a lot of roles where, uh you know, some of the uh the forgotten, let's call it, family members can carve out niches for themselves and identities and still represent the family in all things they do, but do it in a way that it feels like they're contributing. They they're important you know they're, they're not number 1 but they're still a, a person who is who's integral to what the family is doing
2: exactly i think we're i've met families or the heads of the family business and they they may be the head of the board the family board if there's a board and then they may try to create the family council which is what we just talked about is sort of the basis of families putting each branch of the family has a representative, that their being of the council is, the purpose of the council is to help steward the lives of the family to make sure everybody's good. Okay. And so then they try to do that too. And I'm like, okay. And then family members will say, yeah, they never never have time for the family council meeting or they're they're trying to rush through it. And I'm like, okay, so why didn't you, Aunt Susie could be the one you want to use. Aunt Susie's the one that always has got all of the events planned she's the one never never misses one of the family never misses anything she's got into she has that informal communication where she talks to everybody even though that the some of the people don't you know they all have their own little fiefdom or biases she seems to have the ability to talk to everybody so why wouldn't you look at her as being one of the leaders of the family and it what's the old saying there's no i in team yeah. So I as we said earlier, Rupert Murdoch is a prime example. His children are aging out; they're doing other things. I think one of the sons has walked away, if I'm not mistaken.
1: I think one you of them know, is on the
2: is on the other side of the political spectrum too. I think right, you know, so they, right. So they, so you lost. You know, the belief is that in families, I think you've heard me talk about this before. There are five capitals to a family: the financial capital, which is what everybody talks about, but the other capital, the human, the intellectual the social, and the spiritual.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: The intellectual and human capital, we do a great job of nurturing that typically in a business, right? You're worried about your talent. You're worried about what we're doing to create unique opportunity, what we're doing. But in the family, we we don't always get together at dinner on Sunday and go the value, the great value in our family is all the human capital sitting here. and the intellectual capital, you guys are nurturing. We just don't do it, although it's important. And the social capital, of course, is what is this for? What is the money going to do? And the spiritual capital is what binds us together. What's our value system? How do we, what are the values that we as a family have? And how are we going to make sure that we pass those on and they, they're they enduring? And it's just so funny because we we know that then those four capitals get nurtured by the financial capital. It's not the financial capital pulling those other four capitals. It's sort of, you sort of, if you had your, handout and you had all five capitals the financial capital is your thumb you want to turn it so it's at the bottom and then you're like oh well that kind of makes
1: more sense because we mm-hmm. really do need to nurture this and because yeah, of the rest of the things are what actually keeps the family together right the, the financial mm-hmm. one is just sort of patches
2: Right. <laughs> right it's a uh, i i find the the great wealth transfer one of my friends that i'm sitting in a the ultra high net worth Institute's meeting and I'm sitting there and I'm, and one of my friends just takes out a napkins. They were talking about the great wealth transfer. He says, look, I've been in the business 30 years. Yeah. He starts drawing a diagram and he goes, you know, half of the 50% is held by baby boomers. 42% is by the great generation. So we're talking about 8% right now. And I, he says, I've been waiting 30 years for this wealth, great
0: wealth transfer. I just <laughs> started
2: cracking up because we all have, we're all you've listened to it for all these years. It's, People are living longer. The controls are there. The money hasn't necessarily changed hands per se. I mean, it, you know, it happens, I'm sure, more than more than we know, but it certainly hasn't been this massive wall waterfall effect that everybody's talked about. So what are we doing?
1: Yeah, it's certainly, it's certainly like lumping people into generations is certainly kind of an obsolete construct. If it ever was relevant, it, it's completely irrelevant now. Because when so, people were born, now is like so completely decoupled from when they die that it, it's impossible to sort of predict these things. Like, oh, boomers are going to die X Y Z. It's like, oh, that's that's crazy. Like a, a boomer does a natural death of forty years apart. You know, nowadays it's and it's not unusual any of them.
2: Wow, so, and how old was the Queen when she died?
1: Ninety something, right? Ninety-five. Was, yeah,
2: ninety-six, something like that. Yeah, so, so she
1: was Queen. I mean, most of the world never knew. <laughs> Another monarch for no. Britain before her, her right? They couldn't remember, Mm-mm. so it's like it's you know she she's become she'd been queen so long that she was the monarchy effectively. Now, if
2: the families all do that,
1: if we all live to a hundred,
2: and you know some of my nieces and nephew are like, yeah, we probably will live to one hundred and twenty. I'm like, God help us, <laughs> but let's see if we live to hundred, then when is the when should we be trying to? establish the other members of the family where should we be nurturing that the transparency we we've got to actually increase the transparency right mm-hmm. just to your point
1: which to what point to... To what, to what point do we stop thinking about just giving things to the next generation? stop focusing on giving things to the next generation like at a certain age all you're doing is hurting your plan almost by giving things to the next generation because they're just gonna you're gonna have to go through all the taxes and then the rigmarole of passing it to them and then they're just gonna have to turn around and do that again <laughs> when they, well we create ten years, the stru- we
2: create these yeah. structures trusts correct yeah, the course. trust will live on forever yeah. some of them or long term they they can have a rule against perpetuity like in wyoming you could have a thousand it's year it's trust take but, them to a
1: special magical trust but even let's know, just yeah. say it's a
2: hundred year life i mean so the purpose of the trust of the trustees is to steward the lives of the beneficiaries but i don't think when we draw the trust i don't think when the people and this is what Jay Hughes and a group of people have really been talking about lately and I think his new books about is just what, how do the people live within the plan? In other Mm -hmm. words, are we thinking about the children's life or the grandchildren's life when we develop the trust? Are we thinking about how they live within that in the context of their life? So the terms of the trust, you know, you can write anything in a trust and say, that it was the love of your mother and I and the great success that we were able to have that we are giving this to you with great hopes that you will impact the world and make it a better place. Not only find your passion and be able to share that and have a happy life that you share with someone else, but you also will impact people for the good. That's a very different message than say, you've now received $5 million. (laughs) So it's a transfer. You know, there's three things that we talk about. And that is, you know, there's the gift of love, which is really what I think all families are trying to do. I really do think it's a gift of love, but it becomes a transaction or a transfer, which misses that very important point, which then results in the third thing that we try to to deal with, which is entitlement. Nobody wants an entitled person.
1: I mean, how much, this is one thing I always wonder, and I'm always interested to ask people who work with Honeworth families about, How much of a problem is entitlement versus, like in comparison, obviously it is a problem, but in comparison to how much we worry about it being a problem?
2: I think it's a huge issue. Okay. I actually think it's probably the issue. Mm -hmm. And it's a result of us failing to do what you're talking about. Yeah, It's a failure of the transparency and the flexibility in our planning and the communication. And then we get upset, and then there you 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 see people that are trying to control it from the grave by putting the trust and control it like you can't get your until you're thirty, and then you're going to get this and that and this, and instead of saying,
1: you know, here's the expectation we have, and here's what we want you to do. Yeah, it's it's kind of the opposite of what you just said, right? Instead of planning for how the person is going to live with this trust, it's more planning first of how I want to give it to you, or how I you know. It, it's, it's don't like you just sometimes backwards. want to.
2: You kind of want to walk up to somebody like a Rupert Burnock and say, so you got it right when you were young? Because wasn't he like fairly young when he started the newspaper? Oh, yeah. Right? So don't you want to walk up and go, so you got everything right right out of the gate? You never made mistakes. So you know what your kids never make mistakes. And all the kids,
1: as you mentioned earlier, you're talking to kids with multiple degrees. It's like a lot of times these kids are so, so dramatically more qualified to take over these businesses than when their parents were when they started them that it's just like you know you can't people can't see the forest for the trees sometimes
2: we've had i had some it's always interesting when you grow up in a family business right because your family business has all this drama that goes on because you know and in our family business it was my great-grandfather that started the business and he had a daughter he and my great-grandmother Anne had a daughter betty and betty wallach married roy volk hence the volk which is my last name and then Roy and Betty had twin sons, and so through the generations, my grandfather uh, Roy Volk worked for his father-in-law Jack Wallach. and of course they're very critical. But Roy was outperforming, doing great things, doing taking the company to the next level. And of course their sons, my dad and uncle, were identical twins, took the business to a far bigger level. <laughs> My grandmother used to beam about it. She was always, she would tell everybody and all of her friends about how great her sons were until she was with her sons. And then she would just <laughs> let them have it. And it was the comedy of comedy to watch because there was a story. My grandmother was a, was a smoker and she she smoked Benson, Benson and Hedges 100. So she'd pull up in her Cadillac. She'd get out of her car in front of the office. She'd light up before she came in. Now we have a no smoking policy in the office. And she'd walk in and she'd light, and all the smokers would just inhale because here comes, here comes the chief. And she'd walk right into my dad's office with her cigarette. And my dad would say, mom, we, we have a no smoking policy. She said, nobody ever asked me about that. And I was here long before you were. If it weren't for me, you wouldn't be sitting in this fancy chair. And it's the comedy of watching that, the humility in that. Mm-hmm. But I think, I think that gave my folks a much more humble perspective of the world. I think it gave all of us a different view of the world. She never, she just was that type of person.
1: Because it's so easy to, you know, when you're a member of one of these families to, and to ascend, you know, to a position of of wealth and power that, to, to forget that it wasn't you that did this all alone. And, you know, you have to be constantly reminded that, like, hey, like, there were other people who helped you build this. This wasn't just a singular work of your amazing genius, right? For the most part, occasionally it is, but for most families, you know, it takes uh, it takes a village, right, to to make these things happen. You know, so, so sometimes a smack in the face from uh, from the one who created you is a, is a useful uh, tool to, to get you back in the right headspace. <laughs>
2: and it's fun to watch is if you're the grandchild or the great grandchild, you know, you get a smile on your face. And but the point there would just be that there has to be some way to ground. The people in these roles how do how do you help to see it and some people are naturally that way i think i mean considering the success and and enormous uh genius of bill gates right he's a pretty i don't want to call a nerd but he's kind of like a pretty down-to-earth person i mean he's got he's uh, i don't think i don't think
1: calling world. bill gates a nerd is really particularly uh, outrageous okay, <laughs> i good. think even okay, he would say that. i didn't want to get kicked <laughs> off the show
2: <laughs> But yeah, I mean, he would say it was, he would probably say he's a nerd. And so I think, well, he seems pretty down to earth and his philanthropy is like groundbreaking. The way they go about it is really quite remarkable. And he's, I mean, he's, some people would say second generation wealth, but I think he's really the first generation wealth to create the kind of success I mean, that, of level, that he created. That level
1: of wealth is certainly not yeah.
2: second generation. Yeah. But his, his dad was around, his parents are around and they were very, very much right there with him. So maybe there's something, I, I don't know what the lesson there is for us, but there is a lesson there. And his kids were much younger, of course, and so it'll be interesting to see what they do.
1: Yeah, that's always an interesting part, right? Because, I mean, Elon Musk came from a wealthy family, too, and apparently the old emerald mine upbringing isn't so great for uh, preventing megalomania. So
2: and we'll see. I think uh, your mileage
1: your mileage may vary. yeah. <laughs>
2: Exactly. Well, and there's an example of maybe the genius and the, the other, the, the side effect of the genius. Right. Yeah. So um, I think we're seeing families that have really struggled with, because we see families that struggle with all the dynamics that other families have, like addiction or entitlement or, but sometimes I think we're not recognizing the the talent and we're not nurturing that younger generations passion, Mm -hmm. helping them to identify it. And it's, it's a sad thing because how do you live in the shadow of this great person? It's you're living in the shadow of it.
1: Well, yeah, unless they move a little or give you a little spot of light to have your own cast your own shadow. You know, it's as important part of the process is
2: right. It's larger than not, not
1: ensuring that that shadow blocks everyone out. And that's what the best family leaders do. We see that in, and and
2: Jay, as I as I talk about him so much, but one of the sayings he has is that when people inherit the money, when that money gets transferred, it's like a meteor hits these family members. Yeah. Particularly if they've not been prepared for it, which you would be surprised at how many members are not prepared for what happens.
1: Mm-hmm. In both a directions, changer. too, of the people I've spoken to, because mm-hmm. you'd be surprised. I mean, I maybe you wouldn't be surprised, but I think our listeners might be surprised by. What, you know, some parents will never tell their kids that they're wealthy. <laughs> and so, you know, the kids will, like a lottery winners. Yeah. Almost where it's like, oh, oh yeah. I-, I thought we That's were right. farmers. It's, you know, <laughs> like, well, yes, but we're massive industrial farmers. It's, you know, we didn't tell you that. Part.
2: <laughs> we have a little company called Cargill. Yeah. And, um, or, or, you know, we have oil that we were giving oil rights to. And so we have oil under the ground and we haven't told you about it. And. It just amazes me the and and I don't have an answer to this, by the way. I think it's a study and in, in, in the practice that I have is that you are working with families on how to discover their own path with this because every family yeah. we see the same issues. We see similar issues. Every family wants to tell you they're different. And I want to say, well, yes, you're different, but the issues are same, very similar. and And so we can learn from each other.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's um, kind of the whole point of the podcast and why we're even talking about the royal family, right? Is that, right? you know, these things, if you strip away the silliness, at the end of the day, it's the same stuff. You know, you're, everyone's dealing with addiction. Everyone's dealing with mommy loved you more. Everyone's dealing with having to live up to, you know, mommy or daddy, whoever's number one. I just um, finished
2: writing a chapter on inclusion for a book, and uh, I was watching Crazy Rich Asians. Have you watched it? I have, yes. And the the scene where the son is at home and he's brought home this his girlfriend is a PhD at teaching professor at uh, economics at uh, Columbia right and he says to his mom I thought you'd be happy that the first girl I bring home is a Chinese girl and she says she's Chinese American the worst <laughs> and I started laughing and I watched the movie I took all these notes because I realized that this sense of inclusion and and i don't think with family inclusion the opposite is exclusion i think it's more like disenfranchisement Mm -hmm. and then we see look at prince harry harry and megan yeah compared to prince william his brother and the brother fight and he talks about how his brother beat him and i'm like we're brothers of course they had fights are you kidding me that's what
1: brothers do yeah but you know one brother was the king who can't be touched you know the once and future king and the other is just the spare
2: And what if I, I mean, if I made this crazy remark that said, well, what if Megan just wasn't a nice person? Maybe they just don't like her. It had nothing to do with her. You know, what if when you meet her, I mean, it wouldn't be the first time a family didn't like the potential spouse. No, it's a
1: very common problem. Right. And and that's before we get into any of the also very common, sadly, racial connotations that are there. Of course. Um, You know, so those are all things that every family deals with, you know, and. I mean, even even if she's great, even if, you know, the first son's wife and the second son's wife are very similar. A lot of times that second son's wife is going to be less poorly received, less well received. Well, and and there's been a bit of a
2: track record in the family. There's been a bit of a challenge lately. Right. So I would think that here's a great lesson. It's a great thing for us to be able to learn from and maybe not be so critical of because, for the grace of God, there goes us, right? Exactly. Well, I'm not sure that we're that different. I mean, well, of course, we're different than the royal family, but I mean, well, the problem's yeah. similar,
1: right? Less jewels, but but our issues are the same. Mm-hmm. I think that's yeah. a really great place to to wrap things up because we're running out of time here. Okay, I'd like to thank Tim Volk for, as always, being a really fantastic guest and and sticking with me on this sort of meandering <laughs> <laughs> ill planned chat that I, that I set us up for here and making it hopefully something pretty interesting. Thanks so much, Tim.
2: Thank you very much. Appreciate being here.
1: And for all our listeners, I'll see you, or I guess you'll hear me, on the next episode of Celebrity Estates, Wills of the Rich and Famous.
0: Thank you for listening to the Celebrity Estates, Wills of the Rich and Famous podcast. Click the subscribe button below to become notified when new episodes become available.